This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. The Big Apple is poised to take a big old bite out of Donald Trump as his myriad of troubles come to a head in courtrooms across New York City. At the very moment, there are concurrently no less than five different cases in which Trump is a defendant running simultaneously. Five! Five is the number of the day! This on its face is astounding and speaks to the unprecedented corruption of the Trump years, not to mention the ongoing criminal enterprise that he presided over for decades known as the Trump Organization. For three years or so now, a judge has been overseeing the investigation uh, run by the New York Attorney General's office into this, like, wide, what's alleged as a widespread fraud scheme. Uh, run by the Trump Organization and the executives uh, and the ones who were named in the lawsuit filed last month are Donald Trump, uh, Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump. And uh, that investigation is really looking to kneecap the company, right? They want them to stop their operations in New York and they're trying to collect $250 million. At the federal court on Pearl Street in Lower Manhattan, a judge last week ordered Trump to sit Wednesday for his second high-stakes deposition in just three months. He'll be questioned by a lawyer for author E. Jean Carroll, who sued Trump for defamation in 2019 after Trump accused Carroll of lying when she said that he raped her in the mid-1990s. Because he came out just a week ago and reiterated all every nasty, churlish thing he had said about Carol before. So now he he's lost the kind of uh, recourse of saying, well, I'm not sure, I don't recall, etc. You don't recall, Mr. Trump? A week ago, you seem to recall. I think he is really forced into a, uh, what is it best for him, a he said, she said, but it could be a lot worse. She, If she has any evidence, she, for instance, kept the original dress 30 years ago, but they've asked for his DNA. Uh, and if she has any evidence that he is lying, it will go to a jury. Remember what happened to Alex Jones just last week? That was a defamation case. Judge Lewis Kaplan wrote that Trump's deposition may be used in another civil suit that Carroll has pledged to file, a sexual assault claim against Trump. Ms. Carroll is also taking advantage of a new law that New York State passed last May that gives adult sexual assault survivors a one-year window in which they can pursue uh, a claim that otherwise would have been barred by the statute of limitations. And Ms. Carroll has said that when the window of opportunity for that one-year grace period opens up in November, she intends to file a suit uh, arising out of the actual underlying sexual assault, not just the defamation. A block east of the federal courthouse is the Center Street State Civil Court where for years, attorneys for Trump and his company fought a losing battle to limit subpoenas in a sprawling New York Attorney General probe into their financial practices. Trump's other recent deposition was ordered by Judge Arthur Engeron in this case. Now, Trump invoked the Fifth Amendment more than 400 times during the August questioning. His deposition was among the last pieces of evidence collected before the New York Attorney General filed on September 21, a sprawling 220-page lawsuit that aims to kneecap Trump's company. New York's Attorney General Letitia James is asking a judge to bar President, former President Donald Trump from moving assets to his new company. He incorporated Trump Organization 2. The same day, James sued the original Trump Organization for fraud. New York is seeking no less than $250 million in damages and an end to Trump's business in the state. 
In addition to the Trump Corporation, the Attorney General suit names Trump and three of his children, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric Trump as defendants as well. The complaint alleges that the Trumps and other executives at the company engaged in years-long schemes to enrich themselves by inflating the values of properties across the country. The investigation was prompted in large part by my congressional testimony given in 2019. Did the president or his company ever inflate assets or revenues? Yes. And uh, was that done with the president's knowledge or direction? Everything was done with the knowledge and at the direction of Mr. Trump. Instead of denying allegations in the Letitia James lawsuit, Trump's just blaming the banks for not catching him in his big fat lies. By the way, that got paid back. Just Everybody so you know. Back. Nobody got I, harmed. I never no got harm. a default. No, I paid him back because we have a lot of cash. I paid him back. I paid many of them off. I have very little debt. Unbelievably little debt. The next hearing in that case is scheduled for October 31st. By then, attorneys for the company will be busy one block north on Center Street at a state criminal court where on Monday, the Trump Organization's criminal fraud and tax evasion trial will begin. Among the witnesses expected to be called in that case is former Trump Organization chief financial officer and asshole extraordinaire Alan Weisselberg who in August entered a guilty plea in the case. The judge, Mr. Weisselberg, it is alleged that you, together with the Trump Corporation, engaged in a scheme constituting a systematic ongoing course of conduct with intent to defraud more than one person and to obtain property from more than one person by false and fraudulent pretenses, representations, and promises, and so obtained property with a value in excess of $1,000 from one or more such persons, specifically the United States Internal Revenue Service, the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance, and the New York City Department of Finance. Is that true? The defendant. Yes, Your Honor. The judge in that proceeding, Juan Merchant, is also presiding over former Trump advisor Steve Bannon's state criminal fraud case. Now five blocks south of the state criminal court building is the Brooklyn Bridge, which on the outer borough side runs past another federal courthouse. The building's atrium is named for Raymond Deary, the semi-retired judge who is serving as special master in Trump's lawsuit against the federal government. That suit was filed in August after the Justice Department served a search warrant on Trump's Mar-a-Lardo property, seizing White House files, some of which were labeled top secret. Now Trump has insisted the documents were in his possession lawfully, and that Deary is now reviewing thousands of pages of documents seized by the FBI with a mandate to identify which, if any, are subject to attorney-client or executive privilege. On the eighth floor of the same Brooklyn court building, another federal judge is presiding over the ongoing criminal trial of billionaire businessman Tom Barrack, a longtime Trump friend and advisor who served as chair of the 2016 inauguration committee. Barrick is accused of acting as an unregistered foreign agent in an effort to sway U.S. foreign policy in favor of the United Arab Emirates' interest. Now, of course, he has entered a not guilty plea in that case, and personally, I'm very interested in seeing what happens. In other Trump news, the mango fucking Mussolini is proving his bona fides as an anti-Semite of the highest order. 
Now, not to be done by my old friend Kanye West, who last weekend unleashed a sickening and fucking insane tirade on drink champs spewing verbal diarrhea about Jews before going on another insane rant about George Floyd. In the interview, West disparaged Jewish Zionists. Trump later spoke with West after Kanye announced he was purchasing the right-wing social media platform Parla due to the fact that he had been kicked off both Instagram and Twitter. Who knows what the two discussed, but it seems that Trump was jealous of the attention that Kanye was receiving for his ugly comments. So what does Trump do? The fucking asshole doubles down with the following on his own floundering Truth Social website. And I quote, No president has done more for Israel than I have. Somewhat surprisingly, however, our wonderful evangelicals are far more appreciative of this than the people of the Jewish faith, especially those living in the United States. Those living in Israel, though, are a different story. Highest approval rating in the world could easily be prime minister. U.S. Jews have to get their act together and appreciate what they have in Israel before it is too late. There's a shit ton to unpack here, starting with the classic anti-Semitic dual loyalty trope, which holds that American Jews who neither live in Israel nor of Israeli descent should care more about what is going on there than in their own country. Why? Because fucking Trump thinks this. He cannot wrap his mind around the idea that Jewish people in the United States aren't falling over themselves to support him, even when his 2016 election coincided with an uptick in anti-Semitism that he's not only did nothing to stop, but outright emboldened. And then there's pitting of apparently ungrateful Jewish people against the wonderful and appreciative evangelical Christians. Trump's post conveniently fails to include the uncomfortable fact that a number of evangelical Christians are singularly focused on Israel because they believe it will be the site of the rapture, wherein Jews who have not converted to Christianity will go to hell. The return of the Jewish people to Israel is one of a series of events that will trigger Jesus' second coming. Jesus is telling us that the rebirth of Israel is a sign of the end, not just a sign, it's the super sign. And last but certainly not least, there's the disturbing threat that U.S. Jews have to get their act together before it's too late. What will happen after it's too late? Trump doesn't even say. According to this theology, God will reward those who help Israel and punish those who don't. Now, obviously, all of this is completely horrifying, not only because Trump has indicated that he plans to run for a second term, but because he presently retains an iron grip on the Republican Party which doesn't appear concerned in the slightest about this latest attack on an entire religious group with a long history of persecution. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said at a news briefing, Donald Trump's comments were anti-Semitic, as you all know, and insulting, both to Jews and to our Israeli allies. But let's be clear, for years, for years now, Donald Trump has aligned with extremist and anti-Semitic figures. And it should be, it should be called out, to your point, Darlene, just like we called out our Democratic uh, friends and colleagues last week, and we will condemn and call this out as well. 
So we need to root out anti-Semitism everywhere. It rears its ugly head. We need to call this out. Now, typically, the GOP has been silent on Trump's latest outrage. Trump, who has praised Hitler and who slept with a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed, has said that he is, and I'm going to quote here, the least anti-Semitic person that you've ever seen in your entire life. But that, like most of the words that come out of Trump's fucking mouth, is total bullshit. It's like saying, I have a ton of black friends, after saying something sickingly racist. Well, sorry, pal. You're as guilty as charged. I am the least anti-Semitic person that you've ever seen in your entire life. In my opinion, you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people, and you're being very disloyal to Israel. Yeah. Isn't that anti-Semitic? No, no, no. It's only in your head. It's only uh, anti-Semitic in your head. As the January 6th committee winds down, it is increasingly apparent that Trump not only knew he lost the election, but said so repeatedly. It shows how President Trump was made aware that voter fraud numbers he submitted in state and federal court were false, but even after he was made aware, he submitted those fake numbers to the court anyway. So the judge wrote as part of this 18-page opinion, he said, the emails show that President Trump knew that the specific numbers of voter fraud were wrong, but continued to tout those numbers both in court and to the public. Many of the House January 6th hearings that preceded last week's hearing discussed how Trump's advisors constantly informed him that there was no evidence of fraud sufficient to overturn the election results, and that efforts to suggest that there was such evidence were pointless. But focusing on what Trump was told still permitted the theoretical possibility that he didn't believe it, and that he was irrational and blinded by emotion in his bid to find any information that would keep him in office. The committee presented testimony ruling out this scenario and indicating that Trump was lucid and aware that he had lost the race. According to testimony from Elisa Farah, a former White House aide, while Trump was watching then-president-elect Joe Biden on television a week after the election was called, he said, Can you believe I lost to this fucking guy? The hearing definitely hammered home how Trump had full awareness and agency in inciting the riot at the U.S. Capitol and bolstered the argument using newly obtained messages circulated within the Secret Service to show that the White House knew what the crowd believed and wanted to do on that day. The investigators saying they have significant new evidence of people trying to obstruct the investigation. Obstructing a lawful congressional investigation is a crime. Uh, in the comments from Congressman Schiff and Congressman Pete Aguilar, even more intriguingly, we saw them basically narrow it down to say it's Trump White House officials and also people in the Secret Service who they believe may have lied to the committee and engaged in some kind of organized effort to prevent the committee from getting access to certain information about what happened on the 6th. Even if we believe that Trump's mental state couldn't be ascertained, he'd still be to blame for the insurrection because of his dishonesty and violence-inducing rhetoric. But the evidence suggests Trump knew exactly what he was doing. It's no exaggeration to say that the evidence suggests he was on a mission to inspire an authoritarian mob usurp the legislative branch of the U.S. government using lethal force. 
Then came Cassidy Hutchinson, an aide to former Trump's chief of staff, Mark the Moron Meadows, saying that Meadows told her that Trump told him, and I quote, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. She also reported Meadows told her, a lot of times he'll tell me that he lost, but he wants to just keep fighting it. The committee presented evidence that the Secret Service knew that Trump's supporters were preparing for an armed assault on the U.S. Capitol as early as December 26th of 2020. According to testimony from Trump aide Judd Deere, the night before the insurrection, Trump could hear raucous crowds on the street near the White House and acknowledged they were angry because they believed that the election was rigged. On the morning of the insurrection, Secret Service agents informed Trump that thousands of people near the Washington Monument were not entering the rally area because they were likely armed. Trump not only didn't give a fuck, he wanted them to be let in and march with them to the Capitol. So multiple sources say Trump didn't just constantly hear that he had lost, but that he himself knew it and acted like it. We also know that he saw January 6th as his last resort for changing that reality. We have a lot of fun here mocking Trump and he deserves everything fucking dished out to him. The man is most definitely insane, but the danger in constantly painting him in such words is that it gives his apologists a means to excuse his behavior. The reality though is quite plain. Trump was not a madman who, ensnared and raged over not finding the fraud that fulfilled some bizarre hunch he had about his invincibility, irresponsibly encouraged a rowdy crowd to march to the Capitol on his behalf, where things got out of control. It's far worse. Trump knew that he had lost, encouraged a violent mob, learned that his violent mob was indeed going to show up, and then did everything he could to get them to overthrow his own government. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show intrepid newsman Ali Velshi, host of Ali Velshi and seemingly the favorite fill-in host of every other MSNBC primetime news show. Velshi also reported live from the front lines of the George Floyd protest and most recently he dodged incoming fire from Russian artillery when he fearlessly reported live from the front lines in Ukraine. A concerned citizen of the world, Velshi seems to be everywhere that there is injustice. I recently joined Ali on his show to discuss my latest book, Revenge, how Donald Trump weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice against his critics. I ask you to buy it, to read it, and let me know your thoughts. But today, he joins me on Mea Culpa to discuss Trump's anti-Semitic dog whistle and the looming midterm elections, which could reverse the work of the January 6th committee and unleash a new wave of MAGA insanity. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Ali, all of the on-the-ground reporting that you do, it seems incredibly dangerous to me. And I know that you're a family man. Spectacular yep. work, by the way, in Florida. I have a friend who lost his home in Sanibel. Um, by the way, he lived in Rockaway Beach, which is where yep. Sandy had taken away yep. his home and all of his friends and oh. neighbors' homes. Yeah, he's my, my heart goes out. I mean, this is twice, right? So 
really truly spectacular work by you in Florida you. during the hurricane. Um, and you were also in Eastern Europe and Ukraine yep. in the early yep. days of Putin's war. What's yep. your draw to this type of risky work? And how do you become the go-to on-the-ground reporter for MSNBC? <laughs> well, uh, part of it is or I is it that you Or is it that you're just not really that valuable? So, you know, look, he's only the weekend <laughs> right. guy. So I'm if we expendable. lose him, who gives a shit? Well, it actually started in my CNN days where um, it, it started with hurricanes because what people wanted to understand is why every time there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, the price of oil goes up. So one of my bosses said, well, I want you to go down there and talk about the evacuations of all those uh, those those rigs. And I went down there and I, I found like I got a rig that I could go onto, and you had to take a helicopter. And it was like more than an hour ride out into the Gulf of Mexico. And in that hour, and this was 2005, so cell service wasn't as good and all that kind of stuff. In the hour between when I left basically Houston and got onto that rig, which was right out into the Gulf of Mexico. It was when a hurricane Katrina had changed track. It was supposed to go for Florida and it, it started moving toward uh, the Gulf. And so I ended up uh, witnessing a, an actual evacuation. It was like, not a, you know, not, we weren't going to just talk about it. They were evacuating that rig and we had rudimentary broadcasting uh, ability, but we were able to broadcast off of that rig as helicopters were taking off, evacuating people 10 at a time evacuating 10,000 people from the Gulf of Mexico. Anyway, I ended up covering that hurricane and I'd be there sort of in case the shot went down for Anderson Cooper or whoever was leading it. I, I was sort of the backup guy. And I started becoming less and less the backup guy and doing more hurricanes. And I love the weather. The, the reason I do hurricanes is I'm just fascinated by the weather. And without this being my job, I can't really just go out and stand in a hurricane and watch it, right? My, my family would think I'm a nut. So the hurricanes became a lot of the stuff I did on the outside. It was because of my business background as a reporter. And then from there, it became conflicts. And, you know, I covered the George Floyd um, mm -hmm. uh, protests and, and got shot with a rubber bullet by then. And at that point, and I worked for Al Jazeera for a while, so I spent a lot of time in conflict zones. So it's all just kind of morphed into, uh, you know, going to these places. I, I do like being on the front lines of a story. Right. It allows you to bear witness and hold power to account differently than if you're not there. It's not that you do it better or worse. It's just different. So I enjoy uh, being out there and talking specifically to people. If you remember when I was in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine, I mostly spoke to people on the ground about how they felt. I'm not your guy to tell you about the missiles and where they hit and all that kind of stuff. I'm your guy to say, how are people feeling about this? What's their psyche? What's their, whether their home has been destroyed in South Florida or their country's being destroyed by Vladimir Putin, what's the fight in them? The, the, the strength of the human spirit is where I live, right? That's when people say, what's your best interview ever? It's never anyone that, who anybody would guess, right? It's people who come back to their home after a hurricane or, or a tornado or refugees who I met in Budapest as they got off a 30-hour train ride with their little kids who can't communicate with their husband. Human spirit stories, kind of why I, you and I get along so well, are much more compelling to me than so-called the news. Yeah, I would have to say that your best interview has to be the one with Michael Cohen. I, I think that, well, uh, my best interview was the one with the woman who is to be my wife. You're the second best. <laughs> I'll, I'll, by the way, I'll accept that. Now, let me ask you this then. Because when you were in Florida during Hurricane Ian, how did you perceive the actions of the DeSantis people, of FEMA, as well as the Biden administration? Because there are rumors that DeSantis is responsible for the late evacuation of the Lee County residents that cost some people their lives. What did yeah. you see happening while you were there? 
Well, I was a bit surprised by the whole Lee County thing. That's where Fort Myers and Fort Myers Beach is, which is where I ended up. I started in Collier County, which was Naples, and then moved my way uh, north as the storm came in. And I, I, I am very, very concerned about what happened in Lee County. I don't understand why people didn't have the right information and weren't told to evacuate because it was absolutely destroyed. And I would say that the government shouldn't have worse information than I have, right? I've got, I, everything I have is publicly available information. Everything I know about a storm, you can get the same thing. I've got a couple of apps and I listen to the National Hurricane Center. So I'm, I'm quite puzzled by why that happened. I, I will say in the immediate aftermath, there was a great deal of cooperation between county authorities, state authorities, the federal government and FEMA. And I'm glad for that because I, I, you know, there's one place that infighting should stop. It's it's at that point. But, you know, DeSantis uh, was hypocritical in the fact that he voted against uh, hurricane aid uh, for, you know, after storms that had hit the Northeast because, you know, it was a congressman at the time and didn't think that was right. But then immediately asked uh, Joe Biden for 60 days of paid federal aid. Uh, you know, on the on the backs of all taxpayers for Florida. And I don't I don't I don't object to what he asked for, but I, I feel the double standard between him and and Marco Rubio. I thought that was that was odd. At some point, either it's all for one and one for all or it's not. And and Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis had proved that they weren't one for all and all for one in the past when it came to hurricane resistance that's born on the backs of the American taxpayer. So I found that opportunistic. I, I thought it was interesting that Joe Biden didn't call him out on that, because in that moment, you don't need your politicians fighting. You need to know that your politicians are working together to get your power back on and your water back on and get your homes built. But um, Ron DeSantis continues to not be the most consistent politician in America. Or maybe right. he is consistent. However, or, consistent or maybe he is. Exactly. Yeah. But one of the biggest concerns that I see is I see Ron DeSantis as certainly one of the top three Republican Candidates who will probably be the Republican nominee in 2024. Yeah. Now, I think you're probably I'm not right about it. I mean, look, you and I, we, we talk about this a lot. Will Donald Trump run? You're pretty no. clear that he won't run. So if he doesn't run, that definitely makes, at the moment, Ron DeSantis feel like the lead uh, contender. I think if, in fact, that Trump ran anyway, according to uh, the Quinnipiac poll, which we've talked about at length, Ron DeSantis wins anyway over Trump. And on top of that, there is going to be a slew of Republicans that are going to throw their hat into the ring simply because this is exactly what happens when, you know, you coming off of a Democratic White House, you have a complete open field for the Republicans. But the part that bothers me about the prospect of a DeSantis as president, and I'm not going to minimize the hurricane at all, because I remember when Sandy hit us here in New York, while we knew it was going to hit New York, we never anticipated the extent of the absolute destruction that it left along the coastline. But while he does have all of that information, and not to go ahead and not to advise Lee County residents to get out um, to make sure that people were safe and so on. To me, it just shows that he's not capable. How do you run an entire country when you can't even get your own state or a county, for that matter, through a hurricane? And yeah. the reason I bring that up is because we see, as a result of climate change, something that Donald denies, right? Um, that yeah. He's an absolute climate change denier. We see the ferocity that more and more of these hurricanes and storms um, are leaving. 
not to be more in tune with the information that's readily available to me is just a sign of weakness. And I find it difficult that someone thinks that they could run the entire country when they can't even run their entire state. Well, but it's got to it's got to it speaks to the priorities, right? Ron DeSantis is deeply entrenched in culture wars. He's deeply entrenched in riling up his base around immigration. Um, he's 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 deeply entrenched in a whole bunch of things that don't actually relate to people and their lives. And and when you come down to it, if you're in Florida, if you're in the Gulf Coast, and a hurricane's coming towards you, that's actually in that moment more important to you than immigration and and culture wars and banning books and stuff like that. But but Ron DeSantis, because he wants to be the successor to uh, Donald Trump and he wants to have that base, knows that culture wars are the way to go. The the interesting thing about DeSantis versus other people who run or senators or people without political experiences that governors um, can often do very well because they prove the ability to work across the aisle. They prove the ability to get legislation passed. They often have to work with legislatures who are not, um, you know, uh, with, of their party. That's not a problem that Ron DeSantis has. But generally speaking, governors have a resume, right? They can show you things and they can show you what they've gotten done. Ron DeSantis is eschewing his resume in favor of being another Donald Trump. And I find that interesting because Donald Trump is also the guy you wouldn't want in charge of a hurricane, right? We've seen that. What do he do in Puerto Rico? He threw them paper towel. What do he do Could with that? Could you imagine hurricane? toilet paper and paper towels? Yeah. Yeah. And then he drew a, a, you know, use a Sharpie on a hurricane map. Like this is not the kind of people you want in charge of these things. The irony about, about uh, Ron DeSantis is, as you know, highly educated, uh, military in his background. Like he's he's actually a guy who, if he did the right thing, might do the right thing, except he's deliberately choosing in some cases not to do the right thing because for the base, for Donald Trump's base, um, that kind of stuff works. And that's what's disappointing about it, that I actually believe, I never really believed Donald Trump had what it took to to do these things, to be the president of people when it's important to be their president. I thought Ron DeSantis might, um, and and when he you know, this sort of thing in, in in Florida made me wonder if you're that into your culture wars, if you're that into banning books, if you're that in that concerned about trans rights or not having trans rights, you you, you miss the actual stuff about governing. I think a lot of the stuff is important, right? I think a lot of these uh, democracy issues are really important. Ron DeSantis and I are not on the same side of many of them, but but actually as a governor. What's more important is governing your state and keeping your people safe and, and prosperous. And, and in this particular case, uh, that didn't happen. Not only did that not happen, let's just let's just do a little Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis comparison. Both of them think that they have unlimited power and authority conveyed upon them because of their position. Um, one is president, the other as uh, governor. What's interesting is Going back to this immigration issue, and Ron DeSantis thought that he was clever, right? That he right. was gonna, he was a, going a to make a real name, right. right, for himself as being a protector of Florida and this anti-immigration right. guy. A Democratic senator from Miami, a guy by the name of Jason Pizzo, about two, three weeks ago, right, they filed a whole slew of lawsuits. I believe it was the second one filed by him. Asking a judge to block the Republican governor, block DeSantis, from spending any more of the state's money on the transports. Now, remember that DeSantis started the transports about a month or so ago, um, and the state then paid this Oregon-based 
airplane, airport carrier, whatever they are, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of Florida money to fly, what was it, 50 migrants from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard. Right, nothing to do with Florida at all. Exactly. So that's the part that, to me, I just find very interesting and why we need to question somebody like Ron DeSantis. First of all, he's spending Floridians' money in order to move people from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Right, right. I'd be be very, very annoyed as a taxpayer to find yes. out that's happening. I'm not annoyed if my taxpayer money goes to help people who lost their homes in, in Florida. I think it is. I think it is all for one and for all, one for all. But why am I paying money to transport migrants from, from Texas to, to Martha's Vineyard? Like I, I, that, That's just money that didn't need to be spent at all for any reason. Well, it, the only reason is because Ron DeSantis believed that it would benefit him. It would give him that same sort of Trumpism or Trumpism type that's of a campaign finance violation, right? He can do that. He can spend his money, and he can probably spend his campaign's money uh, flying these people. The issue is you can't spend state money. You can't spend taxpayer money on that kind of stuff. And I, and people are investigating this, right? Like if that's what it was, because you would have to prove. Ron DeSantis may be called upon to prove that there was some benefit to the state of Florida in spending this money to do that, right? And if you can't prove that, you you can't do that. You can't do that stuff to burnish your reputation as a candidate, either whether it's a candidate for governor of, of Florida or it's a candidate to be the president of the United States. This is a problem that he did that. I think you're entirely right why he did it. But someone needs to explain to me the connection to Florida and why a Florida taxpayer needed to, to, to shoulder that burden. And on top of that, let's just make one more comparison between the two. They both have people around them, these acolytes, that no matter what Ron DeSantis told them to do, they just went ahead, just like Rudy Colludi, fucking moronic Giuliani, and the Mark Meadows, and the, and the Josh Hawleys, and the Marjorie Taylor Greens who's still at it. And what happens in that lawsuit, they're now suing... DeSantis, the suing Florida, <laughs> for luring these migrants onto the flights with false promises of jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. You have some, I think it was some civil rights law firm took on this case. So now, just like Donald, lawsuits are flying all over the place. And the lawsuits are accurate. They're justified. And that's the part to me that makes Ron DeSantis so scary, who I call the Donald Trump 2.0, because you're right. He's so much fucking smarter than yes, Donald. He's, he's smart actually guy. book smart. He really yes, he is smart. smart. And on top yeah. of that, he was, you know, he is a veteran. And, you know, he, on paper, he looks so good. Yeah. But then yes. you take, take the paper away and look at him. Look at what he's doing. Look at how he's just sowing additional divisiveness between yes, yes. Americans, between now it's Floridians and everybody else other than yeah. Texas. Yeah, and I don't understand it. I don't know why he does it, uh, because there was a moment in which you, Ron DeSantis could hold the mantle of being the the, the likely Republican candidate and not and be a smart guy and not do that. But we, I mean, Florida, the, the whole issue with immigration in Florida confounds me, right? Florida would, would just not be the power that it was it is today without immigration. Uh, Florida's got a large proportion of immigrants. I don't really understand why this works for him. But but this this sowing of grievance thing, which Donald Trump got better than almost anyone else 
else in American history. People get it well, get it, get, do that well. But in recent times, we've not seen anybody do it as well. Presidents, people who run for president, often run on the basis of the fact that I can be a uniter, right? Whether or not you believe Joe Biden did that, he launched his campaign on the basis of the, the soul of America, right? It was it was actually about Charlottesville when he started running. We weren't in the COVID mess and doing all that kind of stuff. Right. I'm fascinated that Donald Trump, as he came down the escalators at, at Trump Tower and talked about Mexicans as rapists, and as he uh, discussed um, the, the Muslim ban, he he abandoned that right from the beginning. He said, "I'm not I'm not here to unite people. I'm here to protect those of you with a particular grievance, and your grievances are about all sorts of people across the board. So you didn't get into college because Asians did, or you didn't get a job because a woman did, or you didn't do this because refugees and immigrants did this, and you didn't do this because black people have certain rights. And he, like the alt right movement, brought it all together and and made people think this is my guy. And we've now invented a prototype." Where a guy like Ron DeSantis, who actually could have had a political future separate from that, without ever being that guy, his history doesn't suggest that he should have been the guy who riles people up and 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 disunites them, has now decided that it is probably more fruitful for me to go down this road. He will there are moments in which Ron DeSantis will escape from this, right? I, I was down in Florida when that building collapsed in, in South Florida, and he was there, and I thought the things he did seemed very gubernatorial and very, very correct. Uh, often in hurricanes, he'll he'll do the right thing, as many governors do. They they sort of tone down the, the partisan rhetoric for a while. But in the end, Ron DeSantis is running, if he runs, on the same basis of, I have figured out all of your grievances, and I'm going to poke them. I'm going to stick a, a finger in your your scars and your wounds to motivate you to do this. And I just wish, Michael, I just wish there's so much hope and opportunity in this country for someone who says, I actually can bring you together. I don't know that Joe Biden's the guy for it, but he he definitely want, wanted to be and probably still wants to be. I just want that to happen. Let's get some healing. Let's stop with finding people's grievances. But unfortunately, Michael, it's not a U.S.-specific problem. It's happening across Western Europe. You're seeing it. It's happening all over the world. People have figured out that grievance is much better uh, than than solution, and that makes me sad, particularly when smart people like Ron DeSantis do it. Totally agree with you. Now, Ali, you talk to average people every single day. Why isn't President Biden more popular? And I bring that up again. Let's use Ron DeSantis as the counterpoint. Yep. He's incredibly popular in Florida and that's and widely popular across various different sectors. Yep. The part of Florida that blows me away is the Cuban-American population and the right. fact that they are so pro-Trump, that they are yep. so pro-DeSantis. Do they not understand that? What these two are basically looking at that I write in my book, Revenge, the very last line is that Trumpism is fascism and that mm -hmm. we, must ab we must abolish and destroy this, right, mm -hmm. from our body politic. But, I mean, the way I see it, I think Biden is doing so much good and he's doing a lot of things right, including going down to Florida the way he did and not like what Donald did with whether it's Ukraine or even New York and so on, where he makes you get on your hands and knees and beg him because that's what he right. wants. Right. Well, and he brags Including, about it. Right. And then he brags. About, and yeah. How about COVID relief when he refused yep. to allow the checks to go out because yep. Steve Mnuchin, the secretary of the Treasury, signed it and not Donald. I mean, this is yep. the psyche yep. of these yep. narcissistic sociopaths. But. Biden, like I said, he's getting some shit done. 
Yes, but he's not Can that guy, be? right? He's not, not right. Getting, getting a check go out because he doesn't have his signature. Biden, unfortunately, is an institutionalist. He believes doing the right thing is actually the right thing to do. And so he doesn't perhaps take the credit that he should or ask for it. And I'm okay with that. But I, I and I'm going out again. I'm on my way out to Michigan now and then to Arizona to talk to people, as you say, because I enjoy doing this. But I, I'm going to ask that question more because when I talk to people who like Biden, by the way, Biden is, is, is liked, um, but they they have they fall for this nonsense for infl- inflation, for example. We have eight point four percent or something inflation. The UK has 10.1%. Turkey has 80% inflation. 48 developed countries have inflation, right? Did did Biden cause all that inflation? You know, people fall for the nonsense. And by the way, when it comes to inflation, because it's the price of milk and it's the price of gas and it's the price of your car and it's your rent and and, and the mortgage, mortgage rates are going up. So if you're on a variable mortgage, it's the price of your house. People buy the unsophisticated nonsense because some time ago, Michael, I don't know when exactly it was, and probably people in my profession are responsible for some of it, we stopped being critical thinkers. We stopped think, sitting there saying, wow, I know uh, Ron Johnson says that this is you know, Joe Biden who's made me had inflation, or I know Ron DeSantis says this about that, but we have to be critical thinkers and say, you know, this isn't actually Joe Biden's doing. The guy's doing stuff. He's passing bills. He's done some bipartisan stuff. Why, why is he not getting the credit? Because we're not critical thinkers. And Can and it also be, Ali, can it also yeah. be because of his age? Can it just be, I hear this Could all be. the time, and I get so angry at people when they do this. How about if you just take age out of it? Oh, my God. Did you hear the mistake that Joe Biden said? Did you? Right. He's clearly he has dementia. I mean, all of a sudden you have a guy who's a a banker. I've heard that from people who like him. Right. I've heard that people say that. But it's it's falling for something. Right. It is. It is falling for the idea that he must not be good because of that. Because my response to it is if he I, I don't believe he's cognitively not there. And the way I know this is because the stuff that he speaks when he's speaking to the heart about things he knows about like ukraine or foreign affairs or getting a deal done when you hear him talk about that it is it is clear as day that this guy knows everything he's talking about not a great prompter reader he squints a little when he reads the prompter so it makes him seem like he's struggling with it and but he's been misspeaking for decades right you know joe biden often found the wrong word or misspoke I, i don't i don't i don't care that much about it but i i i will say that if you fall for it, you know that he also stutters, right? I mean, he and yeah, he's, he, he is known. He, since is he was a very, child. Yes, and he is very um, outspoken about it. Yes. So he, over the years, have he learned struggles with sometimes getting a word out. Yes, right. and so, but people want to turn around and they want to criticize him. He has empathy. Have you ever seen him with families of people who've been killed or have lost their homes or have been victims of a shooting? All I want is this guy 24-7. I want him in my house if he's not going to be president. I want him comforting me for all those days when I don't feel good instead of the other guy. I got into the elevator with a, a woman the other day who said, you must uh, you must not be happy with, with your guy and how he's doing. And I said, I, I don't know what you mean because Joe Biden's not my guy, but I think you're talking about Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. And I'm not quite sure what you're trying to tell me because yes, pretty much on everything that we've seen since Joe Biden's been president, I would rather have Joe Biden than Donald Trump because I, th- I worry like you do about the basics, about democracy being eroded, right? I'm, 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 I'm not happy to pay more money for food or, or for things that I pay more money for, but I'm actually worried about my democracy going away. And 
And that's what I, you know, if we look at our economy and you look at what, what Biden's done, it's actually very strong. The reason we're raising interest rates is because we have inflation. The reason we have inflation is not some extraneous thing where people say we should have been on the gold standard and our, our dollar is collapsing. The U.S. dollar is stronger than every currency in the world. We have inflation because our economy is mm-hmm. too hot. Because wages are too high, because unemployment is really low. But you know what? Not a bad problem to have low unemployment. Not a bad problem to have high wages. We can fix this thing, but you're not fixing anything if your climate's gone, and you're not fixing anything if your democracy's gone. So I would really like people to say, yeah, it pisses me off that I you have to pay just, You just took the it. words right out of but my mouth. Fix democracy first and then fix this earth and then we'll get your prices down. I get it. It's hard. I get that people live paycheck to paycheck, Michael. I'm an economics journalist. I, I'm really sensitive to it. I go out and I talk to people in America who are having these struggles. I'm really sensitive to it. It's really important. It is not more important than losing your democracy. Ask those people in Ukraine. And now I want to bring to your attention that there was a poll. And I think we even talked about it on your show. You showed me that there was a poll It's like 28% of the country believe that the very first um, issue that they want to vote on has to do with the economy. And then the second one, I forget, was also um, something else. And third was democracy. Yeah. All right. You see, yeah. by the way, maybe I have dementia. I couldn't remember what the second one was, but I know the first one was economy. I think the price of price of oil is what yes. it was, right? Yes. Um, Which is price interesting. Of oil economics are normally the top of every list, right? Unless you're like in southern Arizona or Texas where immigration tends to top things. But generally, it's economics. So the idea that it has hammering away at this conversation about democracy that you've been doing and I've been doing for a couple of years does work. Right. People understand, oh, this is actually bigger than economic stuff. Economic stuff is cyclical. It'll fix itself. Ali, it won't 54. fix itself, but it'll get fixed over time. The stock market's down 20 percent. I can show you a stock market over the last hundred years. It always goes up in the end. These th- these blips are very small. Democracy doesn't fix itself. Right. Democracy is a cactus. It doesn't need a ton of work. It needs a little bit of attention. And, right. And we that's the only attention that matters in democracy is the attention that you and your listeners and me and my viewers and citizens uh, give it. We are foot soldiers for democracy and the, the battle is calling us. Ali, but 54 percent of the country are more concerned about the economy as as well as fuel than they are about democracy. And I, I scratch I my head to that one and I try to explain to people if you don't have a democracy, it makes no difference how much money that you have. It's not yours, Correct. right? I mean, no, unless you're an autocrat, unless you're 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 an oligarch in Russia, yeah, exactly. Ooh. You have to worry about this. But you know what? We're two hundred and forty whatever years from uh, a, a revolution. We are many years from the civil rights movement. We're ve- many years from the suffrage movement. We've forgotten that this fight doesn't ever end. Democracy has to be fought for at all times. And sometimes it'll pop into the foreground like it does right now, and we've got to actually do it. This is the thing I want to remind people. The economy is cyclical. You will go through some tough times, and then you will have good times again. Democracy is not cyclical. If you wreck it, if you break it, you're stuck with what you broke. And it is much, much, much harder to fix than high gas prices and high interest rates. That's what people have to register. And that's why, speaking about registering, everybody has to be registered. Everybody has to go out and vote. We know midterms are not the place where where people show up in in great numbers. We have seen in some cases the example, particularly in Georgia and Michigan and places like that, registration numbers are high, early voter turnout is turning out to be high. But this is our responsibility. Most of us did not have to die or fight for the right to vote. So use it. 
Just use that right to vote and 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 say that you did your part for democracy. Then go back worrying about the economy. I, I'll be there when you're worried about the economy because this is what I specialize in. But we yeah. are all equal specialists in democracy. And I turn around and I tell people all the time, once you lose that right, like we have now lost in Roe, you're never getting it back. So after Obergefell gets knocked off, you're never going to get it back. It'll take you 50, 60, 70 years, the same way it took to get it. And it's just a shame. But let me ask you this then, Ali. What do you make of Elon Musk and his friendship with Putin? I mean, he's been sending mixed signals about whom he supports uh, in this war. Does it... Does it seem to you like he's on board with a Putin peace strategy that would, in essence, give Putin chunks of the Ukrainian territory? And more importantly, what do you make of a character like Elon Musk playing diplomat? Now, I get it. He's fucking rich. Don't get me wrong. He's really rich. But does that mean that he should have the ability to interject himself into the world of politics when in, yeah, look, he's, he has no idea what he's talking about. I give him a lot of credit for uh, wanting to go to Mars. I give him a lot of credit for moving the actual needle on electric cars. Uh, uh, you know, the, these, these the faster transportation, better transportation. I think the guy's actually brilliant. But I don't really understand some of the things he's done recently. I, I don't understand his rationale for wanting to, um, you know, make Twitter a thing that is more damaging to society than it already has been. I don't understand his rationale now. He's pulling down Starlink. Uh, from Ukraine or not being able to uh, provide it to people for free. This was a, you know, a thing he was doing in favor of democracy and the protection of Ukraine. I don't understand why we think that rich, successful people are necessarily steeped in a world of diplomacy and an understanding of global affairs. And I think that what happens is sometimes when you're that rich and successful, you start to believe your own PR. Uh, and and I, I, I definitely, I mean, I, I used to think of Elon Musk as Wow. If the world were made up of people like this, this is a modern day um, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, and 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 he's not he's not. He's a, he's a really smart guy. And I wish he'd stick to the stuff that he's really smart at. And deploying Starlink satellites was actually a really smart idea and one that that favors democracy. I'm not sure why he's flirting with the Russia stuff. And I'm, I'm actually quite concerned about the, the Twitter stuff, because, as you know, you and I are both very active on social media. But social media today in America might be becoming antithetical to democracy, and it might be making us more stupid than we already are. It's certainly not helping us, generally speaking, become better critical thinkers. And I I think that a guy like Elon Musk, with his resources and his power and his strength and his knowledge, could really be, you know, putting his back into helping build democracy and and equality and liberty. And I, for whatever reason, he seems to have abandoned that that, uh, objective. You know, it's funny. There was an article I read, my God, it was several years back, and I think it was in the New York Times. I have to find the article because uh, I want to properly credit it to who wrote it. But it was in the magazine, if I'm not mistaken. I just I, I see it in my head. I just can't remember. But the head, the title of the article was "What if Elon Musk was Doctor Evil?" It's really an interesting concept, right? Because right. he certainly has the ability now to shoot up rockets at will into space. Right, um, right. What if hypothetically he puts that laser on the moon, right? <laughs> Just right. as Dr. Evil did. What if hypothetically, because he has so much money that he has the ability, for example, as we're talking about, he buys Twitter, right? Even though he's overpaying, what does he care? He can't spend and that amount of money. He can't spend right. the interest in a hundred lifetimes. Right. So now he buys Twitter, and we all know what's going on with Twitter. They're trying to figure out 
how to create some sense of normalcy and control, which in all fairness, none of these platforms have it. Some worse than others, for example, like Truth Social, some of them are just absolutely off the bat. Alex Jones, the same sort of bullshit. But it kind of prompts me to the question that I want to bring up to you. Other than the GOP's hard lean towards authoritarianism, what do you think is causing this bold anti-Semitism that's going on everywhere right now? Because it's shocking because of folks like Kanye, right? Yay, right? Yeah. Who has so much influence, right? He's so good at what he does. And yes, I know this yes. personally because I know him personally. And they're articulating their hatred of Jews like it's yeah. fine to do it, right? And Republicans do what Republicans do best. They're fucking condoning it. I mean, yeah, where are we going with all of this bigotry? I don't get it. Um, look, anti-Semitism is very low-hanging fruit. And and it seems that no matter how much we learn and how much better we get at these things, we somehow just can't give up the 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 instant high of anti-Semitism. It's just it's low-hanging fruit, right? People just throw it out there and and see where it goes. And and you know, organizations uh, try and fight back on it and point out that it's 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 not correct. And others, you know, satirists and uh, the media will come out and and condone it. Why is it still happening? Why does this still happen in this day and age? In fact, the instances of anti-Semitism we've seen in the last couple of weeks have been plain old-fashioned scapegoating, right? Donald Trump talking about how uh, the Jews of Israel get it and he could become, he has enough support amongst the Jews of Israel to become become the uh, prime prime minister. minister. Could you imagine? But, but, but then he adds this little, which is weird and obscure and a strange thing to say regardless. And and then he adds this little bit about warnings to American Jews to uh, whatever he said, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't miss the opportunity or don't, whatever he said. It's like, what, why do you do this stuff? Why, why does this happen? I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get why people do this. But the problem, Michael, is that what used to be anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or these kinds of things that target groups in today's day and age in which extremists are empowered and there are militias and everybody's got four guns, it becomes very worrisome because they, they, they manifest into things in which people get killed and injured. And, you know, that's part of our problem that we've not been able to separate them. So you used to be able to say, all right, whatever, there's anti-Semitism. There's always going to be anti-Semitism. Um, at least it's not like it was in, in Germany in the 30s and 40s. Well, the point is, if everybody's got guns and they can do that, every time they find one of these shooters, they go onto their social media and realize, oh, there were manifestos and there were screeds about this stuff and they were anti-Semitic or they were anti-Black or they were anti-Muslim or they were something. That's the problem in society, right? We have an extremist society now. So these little views that you thought were benign at some point, and I don't know that anybody ever thinks anti-Semitism is benign, but you think it sort of exists in these corners of society, social media and other things have made this now lethal. And that's what worries me about it. When Ye says what he says, even Donald Trump, it wasn't, it wasn't threatening, but it's like, why, why do you, why go down this road of tropes of, of treating people like they're a monolith and, and, and warning them of the way they should behave? Because it just feeds into this nonsense. And as you know, with Donald Trump, with this QAnon weird stuff that he's doing now, with the music that he plays at his rallies, with the little symbol that, that people give while he's talking, it all plays into it. It's all fine to play footsie with this stuff when you're looking to fill a rally and you're looking to be popular. Or you're looking to make a, a noise on a social media platform until some freak takes a gun and thinks he heard what you said differently and kills someone. Right. We're still looking at January 6th. We're still looking at people who say they were waiting for the signal. They thought that they were there to carry out the job that Donald Trump said. It's all a continuum. 
that that we are becoming a cult nation, or at least a significant percentage of us are, and that leads to violence. After Mar-a-Lago, look at all the instances and the references to civil war that showed up on on social media. Well, it's all fine to to discount that and say that it's a bunch of uh, extremist nuts, except if they have guns. Except yeah. if they believe they're they actually do. fighting for their country or their race. That's where this all starts to worry me. This is you can't play with anti-Semitism today because someone will get killed. Right. When you said it's, you know, Trump not trying to be dangerous in his words, this is where you and I are going to have a little conversation about this because again, I just know him so well. I've I made very clear when I testified before the House Oversight Committee that Donald Trump is a racist. Through and through. He can't help himself. But he is. All of a sudden now, Jews aren't loyal. Right? That's really right, what he loyal. Saying. That's what he Jews is. Jews aren't loyal. What a well, terrible thing. Hitler said stuff like this. Of course. What else did Donald say? Blacks, Hispanics are too stupid to vote for him. Right? And that only the blacks can live this way, which I referenced in my book, Disloyal, right? When we were driving through a impoverished Chicago neighborhood. It is racist. It is dangerous. And what he's doing, exactly what you said, he's opening up the floodgates to these disenfranchised, right. these, these white nationalists who are only interested in white pride. They're only interested in, you know, in white protectionism. And yep. they are willing to go out on a limb as they did on January 6th. Look, come January 6th, and I've said this on this podcast before, not to you, but to others. Could you imagine, Ali, if hypothetically the January 6th insurrection was not made up of white men and women, but rather black and brown men and women? How many people there do you think would be dead? How much blood do you think would have been spilt? This white privilege that they are protecting has become the battle cry for the Republican Party. And the fact that anybody, after Roe v. Wade, after what we saw January 6th, after everything that we know that the Republicans are standing for, and I don't say that to mean every Republican, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, what happens? They get the boot, right? There are good Republicans, don't get me wrong. There's maybe they're right of center, maybe they're a little bit more right, but they're not this far right. And they are dangerous. And what's happening in this country every single day, anti-Semitism, as you said, is the low-hanging fruit. It's easy, right? You yep. want to go fight with a rabbi over there uh, somewhere in Williamsburg, or you're going to go fight with a guy who's a, um, you know, uh, a member of Antifa, right? right. You're going to get punched in the face by, you know, by the guy from Antifa, that's certainly for yeah. sure. But these guys don't care because while you come, you know, with your hands to a fight, they're coming with AR-15s and they're really right. fucking scary and they're dangerous. And Donald is behind it. And that's why somebody even going back to a Ron DeSantis, a Trump 2.0, is equally as dangerous. But let me ask you this because further, after Australia reversed its recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, you went ahead and you tweeted out that, and I quote, Australia is committed to a two-state solution in which Israel and a future Palestinian state coexists in peace and security. We will not support an approach that undermines this. In your opinion, are lots of nations changing their position on Israel? No, lots are not. Uh, this was a change of government in Australia, so they made that decision. 
here's the issue. Australia articulated it very clearly. And I think that's the point that to the extent that so there are people who who supported the move of the embassy to uh, Jerusalem because they thought that actually might help the process. Some people thought it was just it was just political, oh, right? They they God, wanted. I have so much to say a, on this. Australia says it undermines the process, and the truth is, in this critical thing, and people get bored of this topic because it's been going on for so long, and they think nobody will ever fix it. But you can't actually get bored of topics, right? You can't get bored of of, of things that are not peace or not. That what you have between Israel and the Palestinians is not long term sustainable. Bottom line, it's they've made it look sustainable because they're able to do it for so long, and people live in in the West Bank and they live in the occupied territories and they live in Gaza. But life there is shit. That's that's the bottom line. Uh, and it's it's a controlled life. It's not the life that anybody needs. And this has been going on for 70 years. It needs to be fixed. Yes. Does moving the Jerusalem, these embassies to Jerusalem and recognizing it as the capital today solve that problem? No. Does it work towards a solution? No. Should that be recognized as a capital one day under an agreement? in which the Palestinians are involved, quite possibly, right? The, 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 the Israelis and the Palestinians might say, we want Jerusalem as a unified capital, or we want East Jerusalem, we want West Jerusalem. But what we need to do as a world is support that conversation actually happening. And when you tell people that, depending on where they are on this issue, they'll say, well, it's been tried, and these guys did this, and these guys did this, and that's why it won't work. I get it. All of, all of the above is true. It does not absolve us of the responsibility of trying to fix it. And it does not absolve the, Uni the United States, which is really the biggest external player in that region uh, and the most influential from playing a role in doing that. And what Donald Trump did um, in, in recognizing Jerusalem as the capital and moving the moving the embassy was that he did undermine a process as slow and as difficult as, as that process is. He did undermine it. But of course, he had the expertise of uh, Jared Kushner, who's his minister of everything, including um, Israeli-Palestinian peace, who didn't actually have much consultation with the Palestinians of this. He talked to the Emiratis. He talked to the Saudis, his friend Mohammed bin Salman. He talked to the Israelis, talked to everybody, but he did what everybody has done for decades, and that is not talk to the Palestinians. There are a lot of people who are mad at the Palestinians. There are a lot of people who think that they were not fair dealers. Regardless of what you think about the Palestinians, that land is 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 um, a land that is in conflict, and there are two parties involved in it, and the two parties have got to be part of the solution. Otherwise, it will never see peace. And I, I hope that that peace will come in our time. And I'm actually optimistic that it might, but it does take clearer thinking than Donald Trump employed. And I would say that what the Australians did might be a move toward clearer thinking on how you support a two-state solution. Look, let me put it this way. <laughs> when I saw that Jared was potentially being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for Middle Eastern Peace, once again, I understand that. I understand that I'm not a professor of Middle Eastern politics. In fact, I've never been to Israel. So when Trump once asked me what I thought of moving the embassy, my comment to him was, I have no opinion onto it. I have none. That was a conversation that took place between me, Donald, um, Ike Perlmutter, as well as Henry Kissinger, the four of us just sitting in his room. One of the most fascinating wow. conversations that I ever participated. And I started to laugh. And Trump looks at me you know, with that inquisitive sort of pucker. And he says to me, what's so funny? I said, Mr. Trump, there's no point in me being here in this meeting. I don't know what I'm talking about. I've never been to Israel, right? I don't have the slightest idea on how to fix 
this situation, which has been going on for 2,000 years, right? right? Or at least since, of course, Israel became the, the state, but the fighting has been going on uh, throughout, throughout history. But what bothered me the most is when I saw that Jared, just by moving a building, that brings you to Middle Eastern peace? I don't think so. In fact, just to bring everybody back, I think that there was a Gaza-Israeli uh, clash that lasted, what was it, all of two days in August mm-hmm. from the 5th to the 7th of this year. Do you know how many airstrikes took place? But Gaza and Palestinian militants firing rockets. There was 147 airstrikes. And they, they fired approximately 1,100 rockets towards Israel. Now, that doesn't sound like peace to me. Right. And right. I'm with you. There has to be a solution. I'm not the right guy for it. I can promise you, neither is Jared Kushner and neither is Donald Trump. That's right. the whole thing. You know, one of the things I understand from people, and again, I'm just paraphrasing now because I am no expert in this. One of the things that they constantly say is that it's really the clerics on both sides that are creating a bigger problem, that Palestinians and Israelis, especially the younger ones, the young Palestinians want to have a real life. They want to be able to go to stores. They want want a life. And the Israelis already have that life. But the Palestinians want it. And they should be entitled to it. They should. Nobody should have to live under the subjugation of anybody else, especially not in today's times. However, there has to be some sort of a peaceful solution because these clerics on the outside are like, well, we can't work with Israel. Well, that's a problem because the second you say that you can't work with somebody and they really are the religious power that's there. They're controlling a lot. The second that they say, we can't work with Israel, we will never have peace with Israel. Well, what the hell do you expect Israel to do? Turn around and say, oh, okay, no problem here. Take Israel. We'll go find some other place to settle. Yeah, no, it's 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 highly complicated. And there's a, there's a second problem, and that is that uh, a lot of these young, particularly Palestinians, have watched their governments fail. Right. They've watched the Palestinian Authority fail in this. They've lost faith in them. There's corruption involved. There's a lot of problems. It's a lot of problems. But you're absolutely right. Things that are very serious problems require very serious solutions. They require deliberation. They require a progress, a process. And there are people who are actually smart on this topic, who've been studying it, working at it, who've been diplomats for a lot of years and who, who are prepared to try and keep on hammering out a solution with the understanding it's not coming next year. It's not going to be like the Abraham Accords, which ended up being yet another grift. Uh, for mm-hmm. for uh, for for the you know the Trump family and Steve Mnuchin and for Jared Kushner, there is a solution to this, but it's hard. All complicated things have hard solutions that take time that will you will stumble on that will look like you'll go two steps back and one step forward. But that's the commitment you have to make to Middle East peace. And when somebody gets it, I will lobby for them to get the no, the actual Nobel Peace Prize because they actually tried to bring something that looked like durable peace to the Middle East. And by the way, it's been tried a few times. The Oslo Accords came real close and and the, and they didn't work. But that doesn't mean you don't try again. So I would really, in my time, I have been to Gaza. I have been to Israel. I have been to the West Bank. And, and I want those people all to have peace and self-determination and prosperity and security. And we as a world can figure this out. The one good thing about Ukraine, which is really a, a NATO war that's being won, it's a proxy war for all intents and purposes, without any NATO boots on the ground, is we have demonstrated the ability when the world comes together to solve a problem, to solve a problem. 
Now, if we put that kind of energy into the Middle East, if we put that kind of energy into dealing with whatever a, a resurrected Iran nuclear deal looks like, if we put that kind of energy into dealing with uh, Taiwan before China invades or surrounds it, if we put that kind of energy into dealing with North Korea, we can actually solve problems. That's going to be the legacy of Joe Biden, by the way. The idea that like uh, George Bush the first, he was able to rally the world around important causes. You may not like the ones that George Bush chose, but the bottom line is they, they were able to rally the world around the fact that we can solve problems. The Middle East, people are just bored of the topic, right? Because it's been going on for so long. They've seen so many false starts. They don't care. Why was Jared Kushner so involved in it? Because he could smell the money. He could figure out that there was going to be deals mm -hmm. to be made from all of these meetings that he was having on behalf of the government. Same with Steve Mnuchin. And what happened? As soon as they were out of office, they were out there making deals. And it's been very, very prosperous for Jared Kushner. Over $4 Whatever. billion dollars between the two. So you could bet your bottom dollar. I'm a business guy. I'm a business guy. I don't begrudge people making money. I do think there was something very odd about the fact that this so-called Abraham Accords ended up being investment funds. Right. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. You and I both. So let's just take let's take it now back to America. Right. Because we have our own problems here. How effective do you think that the January 6th committee has been, you know, so far now that they've wrapped up? You know, did, do you think that they built the case that the DOJ can finally indict on? And what, if anything, do you think will come out of the Trump subpoena, especially if Republicans take over the House and then shut the committee down in January? Yeah, nothing, I mean, not that I'm calling not that I'm calling the House for the Republicans, you know, this quickly, right. but they will shut this thing down and that will be the end of it. Right. So, well, so if they if if Donald Trump uh, ignores the subpoena and it gets referred to the Justice Department before this Congress is out of power, then it's not Congress's problem. Right. At that point, even if Congress changes hands, it's in the Justice Department's hands to do what they are doing, let's say, with Steve Bannon, with others who have ignored the subpoena. So that so Donald Trump could still face legal jeopardy by ignoring a subpoena. It's just a matter of timing. The, I think the January 6th committee has done a good job of building a case that Merrick Garland can then look into. And, you know, my sources tell me that's actually happening, that they are they are seriously considering it, which which could spell um, a real end for Donald Trump. But when people ask me on the street, because people ask me, as they do you, I'm sure, is anything ever going to happen to Donald Trump? My, my gut answer is no, because nothing's ever happened to Donald Trump. There's never been any consequence. So I'd like to be wrong. But if I were a betting man and I were if our money ball and I were doing this just on statistics and card counting, I'd say, there's no way Donald Trump's facing the music, but he might. The, the more important question to me, other than the DOJ, um, is will the January 6th committee in their very compelling report move any needle anywhere, right? Will they cause Republicans who want less government, who want uh, less regulation, and who want lower taxes, very reasonable expectations, I think. Uh, if, if I were a conservative, I would I would share some of those views. Will they cause them to realize I can't vote Republican because I'm voting for a, a, a party of election denier conspiracy theorists? Because there are hundreds of them running on this mm -hmm. ballot right now. And I think the report, obviously, there isn't going to be a report before the election. So I don't know that it moves any needles. That's what I'm worried about. I think they've done a remarkable job of creating a narrative that's much more sophisticated than the best information they had right after January 6th with the impeachment. But I don't know who's listening. I don't even know that the people who need to hear it are hearing it because obviously some media outlets don't even cover these hearings and they're certainly not going to cover the outcome of it. They're just going to call it political and a witch hunt. So to the extent that you have to do things because you have to do things, I think the, the committee's done its work. Uh, to the extent that it may give the Justice Department 
enough of a roadmap to follow to to go after Donald Trump. I think that's important. Uh, I think we've never addressed the issue properly about what's the danger in doing so, because legal minded people say you don't make your charging decisions based on whether or not there's a political outcome to it. But there is because we're in this polarized country where people do talk about civil war and they were ready to take up arms to do something on January 6th. And there's still people like that around the country. So I think this is a truly, truly complicated one. I think it keeps Merrick Garland up at night. And and uh, I, I only hope he makes the right decision. And like you talking to Donald Trump about what's the right solution for Israel, I, I'm going to say the same thing. I don't know what the right solution is here. I don't know what it looks like, yeah. but we can't let this go. We can't let the erosion of democracy continue unchecked, particularly when it was led by a president of the United States. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The only thing is, I disagree. I do believe that he is going to finally be held accountable. First and foremost, right, well, we see what's generally happening. more pessimistic than I am about most things. I've also been right about too many of the things also. Yes. Um, you know, the attorney general here, her case, Tish James, uh, is a nightmare for Trump because, and I constantly, I think I may even have said it again on your show, I call it the Al Capone theory. We don't need to get Donald Trump on everything. The emoluments, right. the Mar-a-Lago. One we don't thing. Need to, yeah. Tax evasion. And they got yep. him. And guys like Mark Pomerantz saw it. Guys like Carrie Dunn saw it in, in the DA's office. And why Alvin Bragg chose to walk away, who knows? Maybe he'll rebuild it based upon the case that starts um, at the end of this month against the Trump organization in the district attorney. And that happens to be criminal. But also, one of the things that the report, I think, is it's historically important, though, unfortunately, like the Mueller report, I don't think Merrick Garland is going to do anything about it. And it's not that it keeps him up at night. Then then I'll tell you what, go to sleep early or wake up and follow the fucking indictments already. All right. It's an it's enough. We all know that this man is a con man. He's a crook. He's you know, he's he's everything that we never should have had in a president. And yet. Nobody wants to hold them to task. And the reason is, and I talk about it in my book, Revenge, and I yeah, really I recommend yeah. everybody that's listening, please go out yes. and buy it. First of all, it'll make me feel good. But more importantly, it's the roadmap to understanding what Trump was doing to, yes. to attempt to create right. and nobody knows that the way you do. into an nobody, autocracy. Nobody lived in his brain and they the way you do. And the same way that they didn't listen to me for the at the House Oversight Committee when I told people what was going on, they didn't. I promise you, this book is eye-opening, and it uses my case to show you what will happen again to other people like yourself, Ali. Believe me when I tell you, you're on Trump's enemies list. He doesn't care about you. The fact that you talk negatively about him, you need to disappear like what Kim Jong-un did. But let me just move on for one second and ask you this, because in the news, I mean, this week alone, we have... Trump's violation of the emoluments clause, right? Look at what he did taking advantage of the taxpayer dollars by overcharging Secret Service and so on. And they don't even have the full, the full picture of it. They did that when he, the campaign was going on and the Secret Service took an office at Trump Tower. No. You have the Mar-a-Lago stolen documents case. And I promise you that, and I said this August 20, I'm sorry, August 31st, um, around that time on my Twitter that I know that there has to be additional documents elsewhere. Yep. They're going to need to check Don Jr. They're going to need to check Ivanka, uh, Eric's place. They're going to need to go to Trump Tower. They need to go to all of the places, Trump in D.C. They need to go everywhere because he's stashing these documents. That's what babies do. But 
like the January 6th committee's case against Trump. I mean, there's so much overwhelming evidence proving Trump's criminality. Why do you think that there's so many people still addicted to him? And more importantly, not just addicted to him, but the big fucking lie, right? You Why aren't it. the facts getting through? What do you and I need to do? Because I started Maya Culpa, Ali. Ali, I started Maya Culpa to build yeah. a movement, a movement of truth, yeah. Yeah. so that we can open up the eyes of these people that are in this fucking cult. But if they're not listening, if they're not in the conversation, that's the problem, right? You, you, For people who have listened, to people who are open to listening, then mea culpa or the work that we're all doing to try and have people understand how dangerous this is, is resonating. And that's why concerns about democracy are polling as high as they are, right? They weren't. I'm telling you, a year and a half, two years ago, when I was talking to, to my colleagues at, at NBC, they were saying, look, this democracy thing is very interesting that you're, you're on about, Velshi. It's compelling, but not compelling enough. People are not going to sit there and think this is actually something they have to worry about and think about. And guess what? Now they actually think that. But some people think it. Some people think. If you take the cross-tabulations of those polls that you and I talked about, Amongst Democrats, the concern about democracy is sky high. Amongst those who did not vote for Donald Trump, amongst those who went out in 2020 to specifically vote for Joe Biden or to vote for Democrats, amongst Republicans, this issue does not rate. It does not top the economy. It does not top immigration. This is the problem. So the issue is the distribution of media, right? You have a better chance of getting to conservatives than I do, generally speaking, uh, based on, on your history and background and my history and background. But the bottom line is the people who are buying these lies or who think it's a witch hunt, they're not listening to us. And, and some of them are reasonable people, Michael. They're not all conspiracy theorists. I, I meet all sorts of people who've never listened to your podcast, never watched my show, but know then what I do. Then they're stupid. But they, they need to open their minds. When people say, how do we get our critical thinking back? Watch or listen to things that are not in your political wheelhouse, because then you will hear some of this stuff and you will realize that your democracy, if, if you think it's just their democracy that's being taken away, that's where you're wrong. Once you start messing with democracy, you mess with everybody's democracy and and, and they they can come for you, too. So don't do this for, on, for partisan reasons. Don't vote for a Democrat on November 8th because you hate Republicans. Vote for the candidate you believe is going to stand up for democracy, whether they be a Republican or a Democrat. Increasingly, you have fewer chances to find that on the Democratic side. And there are other dangers, by the way. There are people running who are not election deniers, but they play footsie with election deniers and they play footsie with QAnon and they play footsie with with uh, with conspiracy theorists. You need to call that out and vote for the person who says, I won't do that. And by the way, if I lose the election, I will concede the election because that's the way things work. This is the most important issue. And people say to me, I, I literally have people who say to me, no, actually, climate's more important. And I'm like, I'm with you. I'm with you. The okay, existence I'll, of the uh, earth right. is important. But once you lose democracy, you've lost the ability to fight for climate change, too. So actually, democracy comes first. Then whatever thing you think is most important after that, whether it's gay rights or abortion or climate or equity or higher wages, whatever, whatever it is. You, if you lose democracy, you lose your ability to partake in that conversation. And as you warned, you may not get it back for 50, 60, 70 years. If, if ever. If you get it. That's right. If ever. So, all right. So, Ali, look, the hour goes by quick, especially when you and I get into a conversation. I can't believe that's it. Why, by the way, that's why, you know, um, when I come on your show, I, I, these 12, 13, 14 minute segments that you give to me, they, I know they're they nothing. go they like in the up. blink of an eye. I, I need yeah. like an hour. So, last question for you. All yeah. right. I'm going to call it my bonus question. <laughs> Predictions are dubious right now, right? But Michael Moore 
has said publicly that he thinks that Democrats are really going to turn out for the midterms and that there's a real chance that we'll take the Senate. Now, personally, I love to think that we have a shot at the House, too. But I have right. no idea. I just truly don't you can't know. can't call it. The House races are too hard to call because there's what's, not enough local polls. What's your take? And do you feel that a blue wave is possible? Are we in for any big surprises? What are you seeing? Because nobody well, has their ear to the ground like you. I think the most three most interesting states to well, let's call it four now. The four most interesting states to watch will be Michigan, where it's where I'm going this week. Then Arizona, where democracy may ultimately die. Then Pennsylvania, where democracy also may ultimately die. Um, and Georgia. Georgia's just become interesting because Georgia's always interesting, and it was so central to the last election. And Herschel Walker is a interesting fellow. Oh, but man. there are probably five Senate races that the Republicans, have, you know, Mitch McConnell himself has admitted are um, where they have candidates of dubious quality. Herschel Walker is one of them. Uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio, questionable. Uh, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who used to be a regular straight up, you know, Republican, a conservative who became an election denier. Um, you've got uh, the the race in um, Pennsylvania. Uh, in Pennsylvania, where where Mehmet Oz is now within striking distance of John uh, Fetterman, John Fetterman, yep, who who you know had a stroke and had had has had difficulty communicating, uh, and 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 you've got Arizona, which continues to be you know you're gonna have, you've got an election denier who's also within striking distance who could be the governor. Pennsylvania could have a governor uh, who is is an election denier. So I don't know, I don't know. Michael Morse from Michigan. Michigan has a, a positive abortion question on the ballot. It's the one state where you can go out there to vote to say you want abortion rights enshrined in the Constitution. That's going to drive a lot of people to actually vote. So Michigan itself may solve the problem, but that's not going to solve the Senate problem. Uh, so I don't know. I, I'm a I'm a bad prognosticator. I often get it wrong. I, I hope people go out and realize how important this is, but I don't believe, Michael, that most Americans share your view and mine. This is the one place where you and I are completely, completely aligned, and that is democracies on the ballot. You may not see a box next to a, you know, a, a square that says democracy, but democracy is on the ballot this time around, and you can actually change it for the better. Joe Biden came out and said, if, if the Senate, uh, if they get a, a, a proper majority in the Senate, uh, he'll enshrine um, uh, abortion rights. Well, that should be enough to get people to to get out there and vote. But will it? I don't know. You and I are going to watch this. Let's hope that we also start seeing the Gen Zers get out there and bring more people. So there's two things that I'm going to say to my listeners before signing off. First and foremost, make sure that you vote. All right. Midterms as well, of course, not just the general election, but midterms as well. We need a blue wave. If you're, if you're going, make sure you take a couple of your friends with you. Make sure that your next door neighbors, that they have an ability to get to the polls as well. And then while you're out, pick up my book, Revenge, so that you understand just how much peril that this country is in. Because again, and I've used myself as the example, they failed the first time around. They now have the playbook in terms of what to do to try to succeed. And if you think that I'm the only one that this is going to happen to, if you end up with a fascist, autocrat, monarch, dictator, personality, president, you'd be wrong. So revenge, vote, the whole nine yards, Ali. Great seeing you. Looking forward to coming back onto your show. Um, Hope to see you soon, my friend, and be safe out there in Michigan. Thank you, my friend. Great to talk to you as always. You got it. Be well. And now for today's mea culpa. I know everyone is saying it, but the upcoming election will probably be the most consequential election of our lifetime. 
The Republicans need just five seats to take back the House of Representatives, but it's not impossible for Democrats to hold the House either. There are almost no nonpartisan House polls at all, so really, who is going to win the House is anyone's guess. Before the Dobbs ruling overturned Roe v. Wade, we might have had to buckle up for a red wave, but not so much anymore. I like to believe, as Joe Biden does, that women will show up and vote in numbers too big to ignore. And should we keep the House and Senate, Biden says, the first thing he'll do is move to codify Roe. The Supreme Court is not the last word on abortion. And this election is as much a referendum on the Supreme Court's overreach as it is a referendum on Trump and the bad batch of MAGA bottom-feeding fucking assholes that he's endorsing. If the Republicans do take the House, Kevin McCarthy just said he plans to threaten a catastrophic credit default as leverage in order to make massive cuts to Social Security and Medicare. So fucking buckle up for that. He wants to limit funding to Ukraine. He wants to abandon the January 6th committee as well as to try to impeach Joe Biden. Not for a crime, but because Trump was impeached. Not once, but twice. So you impeach mine and I'll impeach yours. I mean, it's complete fucking bullshit, but that's just how Republicans are rolling now. Also difficult to factor in is the role that young people will play in the upcoming election. Eight million kids have turned 18 since the last election in 2020. But the question is, will they vote? According to polls, the answer is yes, that about 60% of them say that they're voting to protect their rights. Predictably, abortion and women's equality are top issues for Gens X, Y, and Z, followed closely by the environment and safe gun laws. But more than any other voting bloc, young people have the most to lose should Republicans sweep in November. The interesting thing about folks saying democracy is one of their leading issues is it depends on which party you're listening to because both parties have now painted the other as the existential threat that will kill democracy. Tear up the Constitution and turn the whole place into something that nobody wants. I'd love to be wrong about the GOP's lean toward the evils of authoritarianism and anti-Semitism and racism and sexism and misogyny. But just in case I'm right, vote for the Democrats. And remember that every single House seat matters this fall. There are currently at least 20 toss-ups in yet-to-be-decided districts. If you ever had the desire to work for a candidate in your district, now would be the time. In the last few weeks before the elections, money is pouring in, but it's person-to-person -person contact on the phone or on the streets that will make the real difference. Complicating things for Democrats is a wave of retiring House members who leave in their wake relative newbies to defend their districts. Instead of battle-tested incumbents, there are roughly 10 first-time candidates running for the House without the inherent advantages of incumbency, name recognition, experience, or fundraising networks. But there is a benefit to running against Republicans right now because a lot of the candidates are certifiably fucking nuts. The number of Republican election deniers running for office just keeps getting higher, like the cult is converting them one member at a time. And then, just to fuck things up more, independents, especially women, are leaning Republican because of the economy. So folks, I will repeat, every fucking house seat matters.
The good news is there has already been a record turnout among early voters. So, if you haven't already, figure out where and when you'll be voting and just do it. Every vote counts and that's not just hot air. That is the truth. So happy voting and keep the faith, my friends. Democrats are still in it to win it. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. Oh, baby, don't lie for me. If I tell you my story, don't cry.